I'm glad to see you here today at New Hope Chapel. My name's Steve Coleman, and I'm one of the teachers here. This morning, we're going to talk about attitudes like humility and dependence on God. Uh, And we're going to talk for Mark 10. First, let me tell you about farmers in Maine. They are legendary when it comes to self-reliance. They tell the story of a pastor visiting an old farmer who was part of his congregation. The pastor was amazed at the stunning view overlooking the large garden and said, you know, you and the Lord have produced a beautiful garden plot. Well, the farmer, sounding a little irritated, replied, yep, but you should have seen it when the Almighty had it all to himself. That farmer had no shortage of pride and independence. Attitudes like the farmer's or other kinds of thoughts and attitudes can take root quietly and grow in us. And it's a problem because it can happen without our conscious awareness. It can divert us from our devotion to God. And this message can help you identify what might be standing in your way of a deeper relationship with Jesus. We have two well-known stories to cover, and you could probably retell them both right now without opening the Bible or missing a detail. But, you know, this word has something in it for you this morning, no matter how well known the story. For that reason, let's begin with prayer and call on God. Dear Father, we love you and we thank you for your love for us. That that you came on that rescue mission to deliver us from our lostness. You are our everything and we adore you. Pray that your spirit will work with your word this morning, that uh, he would take those words and drive them deep into our hearts. We ask this in your name, amen. Okay, for the children in our audience that are left, you know who you are. Listen for the words, looking, answer the question, who was looking, why do you think he did that? And the word treasure. And what is the treasure that Jesus talked about? You're welcome to come share your answers with me. Unlike Julie, I don't have candy for you. But I will guarantee you an autographed draft proposed budget by Joe (laughs) Nebbia. If you have your answers right. Uh, So we're going to read through these two narratives, see what Jesus does in each situation, then we'll pull them together, draw conclusions, and as always, we'll talk about how this truth is going to change us beginning today. So we're going to read from Mark 10, 13. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. Mark 13, and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. 
And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All right. Recognize those incidents? Of course. Jesus blessing the little children, and a rich man comes to Jesus and goes away grieving. Typical with Mark, I believe he's put these two stories together. The English doesn't necessarily do it justice, but there's the sense in the text that it's, it's as they're finishing up with this little children thing and getting ready to leave, this man comes running up. So in real time, this likely happened. Bang, bang. There's a lot here for the disciples to learn, and there's some things for this rich man to learn and for us as well. There's uh, sort of three uh, speaking characters. They're the disciples. There's Jesus, the rich man. And then there's sort of one character there, no words, but gets acted upon, and that's these little children and the people bringing them. So it's interesting to see what Mark is going to do in terms of these two stories and what relationship they may have. Important, important point have so little time, and the important point of the story of the little children that I wanted to emphasize was the disciples' reaction. The disciples sharply told the people bringing the children to take them away. They rebuke them, it says. And Jesus responds, which is to let them know they cho chose poorly by becoming indignant at them. And Jesus says that the kingdom of God belongs to people like these children. And then Jesus emphasizes in the next verse. It's, it's, this is a uh, sort of double whammy, two, two exclamation points. Because he says, truly, truly, I say to you, which is uh, a way of really pulling this phrase out, a sentence out and, and attaching great importance to it. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a, a child will not enter it at all. So he really meant for the disciples to get that through their minds. You know, using first century ears, this really is kind of a counterintuitive 
idea uh, in their culture. See, we hear that and we say, oh yeah, little child, aren't they that sweet? They're all getting into the kingdom. But in the first century, uh, they didn't have the same thoughts we do in the 21st century about children. We think of innocence, gentleness, purity. In the first century, they were seen as small, insignificant, needy, and without social status. Because life was kind of cheap. They just didn't count for much. So in the disciples' ears, Jesus' words highlight the fact that these children came with no ability for anything. They had no way of getting anything. They were completely dependent. Well, just moving on to the rich man, this, this, that second counter begins immediately. The man came running and melt, knelt in front of Jesus. He started well. The act, those are the actions of a servant or slave. It sort of indicates a, a, a type of deference. And apparently his question was sincere, because later on we get that strange uh, phrase where it says that he felt a love for him. Jesus loved this man. So this wasn't somebody coming to test him. It wasn't somebody coming uh, with double motives or, you know, this guy really was bothered by something. He was, um, what was the word we used at 10 o'clock? I'm, I'm even there. He is Josh. Discontent. This was discontent in a good way. He, this guy knew he had followed the law, but there was something in him that was nagging at him, something that didn't set right, something in his core that he couldn't feel peace about, and it drove him in a great direction to Jesus to find that out. We know the first thing Jesus says is real curious. Uh, this no, none, there are none good but God. And you know, this puzzles a lot of people. It's not the most puzzling sentence in, in this section, but it puzzles people. They say, wait a minute, but aren't you God, Jesus? Aren't you good? And he's calling you good. But Jesus is seeing beyond him calling him good. He's seeing beyond this simple identification of who he is, and looking at what this man is thinking when he says good. So Jesus is not denying his own deity, but he's adopting the man's perspective of Jesus as a good teacher by saying, in essence, how can you call any human teacher good? God alone is good. So he's talking about the capital good, good through and through, we might say. Not a relative measure. Each, every person who is good is only good compared to someone else. Although we see a lot of humanity, a lot of people that are noble and do great things. They're good. They're good people. Uh, how can we understand this? Let me present to you the humble needle. Stainless steel, very sharp. Don't know if you've been pricked by both a needle and a pin, but that needle is devastating because it slides right in there. It goes a lot deeper. And uh, it's got that fine point. It's polished, highly polished steel needle. 
It's good. Well, let's focus in on it. We focus in on the point. Still a pretty good point there, but where's all the shine? This is not a shiny thing. It's kind of a rumpled surface. And if we get enthusiastic and decide to look in a little closer at the tip, this is what we see. Have you seen a more pitted and potmarked thing in your life? This is not shiny stainless steel with a pointy, pointy tip. And that's because we got closer and closer. We got beyond the surface and we started looking deeper and deeper. More scrutiny, a more honed and refined look. And we get down to this, and you know that shiny needle, in reality has its problems. It's a lot shinier and nicer than a pin. hate to see what that would look like under a microscope. But that's the kind of good that we humans see. We see the needle. We see the shiny. But in God's eyes, as you look further and further, as someone would scrutinize our lives deeper and deeper, they'd find more mess and yuck. The stuff we don't tell other people about that we know about and more. So this is what Christ sees is that this man doesn't really understand what good is. He's talking about this relative goodness. So he sort of nullifies the coming statements of the man, gets ahead of him in this conversation. So he gives this rhetorical question. But then Jesus lists five commands of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the, the second five, slight alteration. Uh, don't go in, won't go into that now. But the, these five, he lists and, and the man says, well, I've been keeping those since my youth. He's not setting the man up for failure. There's a real positive aspect to the law. We know it's designed to show that no one can keep the law. But in keeping it, people were doing what God wanted them to do. They were performing righteousness, um, even though it couldn't be that ultimate kind of righteousness. And the man had kept them all. But he apparently was still feeling like he uh, wasn't, didn't have that answer that he needed because he stuck around. He gave the answer and waited, and Jesus looked at him. And he was right. There was more. The second curious thing happens, and that is Jesus tells the man to sell all he has. Now, this one has troubled the church for centuries. Wait, sell all you have? Then you can, then, then you're in? How, wait a minute. Uh, we, we don't want to do that. We don't want to say that. And I think there are two points that help solve this dilemma. The only way to understand what Jesus is doing here is, first of all, step back and look at the larger context. The Bible. There's nobody else in the Bible that I'm aware of who was asked to give away all their money. Even Zacchaeus only gives away half. There's no rule that says everyone who wants to be a Christian has to give away their money. There's nowhere that says a Christian must live in poverty. And there are verses that talk about Christians having money and what they're to do with it. So what's Jesus doing? He has quizzed the man about meeting the requirements of some of the Ten Commandments, the second half, the ones that are kind of measurable. You can measure if you've killed somebody, if you've had adultery. 
the first five commandments, four of the first five commandments, a little more difficult to measure. But what's Jesus doing? He then directs the man to sell all he owns, which seems to address in practical terms the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus asked him to give up his wealth. The implication is the man's wealth was ultimately more important to him than God. And at that moment, it proved to be true because he went away grieving. Now, we don't know what happens to the man later. If he's anything like me, maybe you, you get something like that and then it sticks with you. And maybe a day later or a week later, you sort of go, ah, you know, I get it. I see it now. So we don't know. We don't know what happens to the man in the future. We just know that at this time, he faces this truth and turns away from it. Jesus lays his soul bare. His wealth was really the, uh, in the place of God in his heart. He was seeking God as kind of a package deal. I'm sure the disciples saw this guy as kind of a package deal. Here's an eager guy. He's, he's following the law, and he's rich. And he and his riches were coming toward the kingdom together, and he wanted to know what he lacked. Ironically, it really wasn't about what he lacked, but what he was clinging to. That was the problem. The man would never have seen it himself or admitted it if he was asked the question directly. But the command to action revealed it. He went away grieved. Now I'm going to come back to his grief in a few minutes, but I want to first quickly finish out the, uh, the rest of this narrative. Jesus states for the disciple the difficulty posed by a wealthy man who wanted to get into the kingdom. And after the disciples are amazed, he brings out his jaw-dropping metaphor. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. At this, the disciples were, sort of as the, the, the Greek word gets to, astonished, struck with amazement, amazement, to be hit out of one's self-possession, stunned. You have to put yourself, though, in the shoes of the disciples and appreciate all they've seen and heard. They've just, they're still smarting from this bad choice of driving or trying to drive away the parents and children who came for a blessing. Now a man has come forward, the ideal candidate for the kingdom. Young, uh, as we read in the other gospel accounts, this man's both young and a ruler in addition to being rich. Obviously blessed by God, a good man. You know, in the musical, Sound of Music, uh, Maria is about to marry the very wealthy Captain Von Trapp, and she sings a song. Part of it is here. For here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. You know, that's what the disciples thought. That's what I think sometimes, you know, is good equals blessing. Blessing is good stuff. The Old Testament says so. But it's not a rule, it's a principle that happens. So disciples naturally see this rich man and say, he is good, blessed by God. 
I must have done something good. It's so rooted in the mind that the disciples, and sometimes we're the same way, it's hard to understand tragedy outside of the idea that maybe they did something wrong. It's certainly the theme of Job. Most of the book is all about his three friends telling him, you must have done something wrong. So we sort of get reinforced with this both ways. We even hear sayings like, what goes around, comes around. Yeah. But Jesus, they might have thought as he first came up, this guy's perfect. Uh, but now Jesus has given the man this crazy command, and he's walking away, crushed. The disciples guessed completely wrong in both situations. They had to be trying to work this out. What does this all mean? And they asked in exasperation, who can be saved? You're telling us children are all in there populating the kingdom, and this guy, now you're telling him forget about it. You're giving him an impossible task. Jesus looks at them. See it in the text? Looking at them. Same word, same phrase, same idea as him looking at the rich young man. You think as Jesus looked at them, he loved them too? Absolutely. Absolutely. But Jesus looked. He didn't just glance, but he looked. The text says no more than that. But you get, the, you get the picture, at least it makes perfect sense to me. Well, cutting through their conf- confusion, Jesus says, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. You know, I like what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, all things are possible with God, even for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, but it's hard on the camel. So let's go back and see what we can learn from the man going away grieving. Uh, Jesus' responses indicate that the man seemed to be entirely on the wrong road, the wrong idea of what good is. And let's talk about some of the reasons why this happened to this guy, why he went away grieving. The first one is because he was talking to the real Jesus And he heard the real message of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, you know, a lot of people heard what Jesus said. But Jesus himself, a number of times, would say, He that has ears, let him hear. I mean, really hear. Really get this. And this man asked an uh, an intense question to Jesus and stayed there and listened. And Jesus gave him the real truth. Um, you know, when you, when you encounter the real message of Jesus, when you're listening for it, there it is, uh, it always seems to ask for more than you thought, and it offers far more than you've ever dreamed. When you meet with God, you either go away offended, or you bow down in wonder and give yourself to Him. It's impossible, it's impossible to meet Him and be indifferent to him. You don't find people walking away indifferent to Jesus that often in the Scripture. Offense or worship. And it's a little bit like the Matrix, if you remember. 
you know, I, and I can't quote it, but that scene where the red pill and the, the blue pill, if you take the red pill, you're going to see, and then you can never go back because you now see the truth. Same thing with Jesus. You see. He lets people see the reality of it. The truth has a polarizing effect. You just can't, can no longer pretend. You have to accept or reject the reality when it's clear to you. Well, the second thing is Jesus destroyed two assumptions about religion or religious views. Man came knowing he was lacking something. His mistake was thinking that either Christianity is something you can add to or Christianity is something you can do. Well, you know, it's not something you can add to any more than an explosion that destroys everything. It makes way for something new. Something new has to come. Change is not superficial. It's something that's totally new and fresh. Remember the story of Martin Luther, who spent a long time as a monk. He was a monk's monk. He was really after it. He was disturbed about his standing with God. And he went after it with a vengeance. Uh, He wanted to be righteous, but he was plagued by no peace, no joy. Uh, He beat himself, went through various things. He slept in the cold just to try to somehow make that turn into righteousness. He said himself that if salvation were achieved by pursuing righteousness, he would have made it. But one day, reading and meditating on Romans, he saw the just shall live by faith. Now, we'd seen that word just before, but the word faith popped out. A light bulb came on. Christianity is a revolutionizing change, and it revolutionized Martin Luther. Nicodemus had the same thing presented to him. You must be born again. Not rejuvenated in plastic surgery, but you've got you to gotta be born again. It has to be something new. That's why we read terms like new creation and transform in, in the Bible when it talks about it. It's also not something you can do to become good. There's only one good. Every other religion in the world, every philosophy, even so-called common sense divides all humanity like this. A horizontal line to represent goodness. So you have good people and bad people. You have moral people and immoral people. You have religious people and irreligious people. Nice and nasty. And with, with you know, some, it depends a little bit, but everybody basically sees that there's this line that you can draw somewhere and say, yeah, these people are good, and these definitely not. But the real line, you know, is not a horizontal line. The real line is a vertical line. uh, There are two ways to God. Both nice and nasty people can do it on their own effort. Or both nice and nasty people, no matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how great or how awful, you can come on a totally different basis. You can come on the basis of your own efforts or you can come based on my efforts, says Jesus. So the world gets divided this way. And you've got some good people in this column and some good people in that column. 
And joining the good people in the left column, you've got some bad people. And you have some bad people joining the good people in the right column. It's a different line. Until you see that real line going through the center of humanity, it's not uh, the vertical line, then you don't recognize that it's cutting across the horizontal. That accepting God doesn't depend on being good or bad. Some who trust God are, uh, are those who are bad as well as they come and trust. It obliterates the horizontal line completely. So you're not good. Nobody is good. There's just degrees of badness. Less bad than others. So, what's, uh, so he comes to the man. Um, so, uh, so we've seen that he heard the real message of Jesus. Jesus destroyed two assumptions about religion. And then the other thing that really sent him away grieving was Jesus called him to action. This was not an academic exercise. This was not, okay, tell me all the rules and then let me go and I'll, I'll, I'll figure out how I'm going to make it. Jesus refused to remain academic. The man was saying, am I missing something? I feel something's wrong. Is there a doctrine I missed? Is there a rule I'm breaking that I didn't know about? And here comes Jesus with an eye that pierces through the smoke screens and all the camouflages and all the thinking and pretense that we set up. And he looked at him, he saw him, and loved him. As if Jesus was saying, as he gave this command, I know this is going to hurt you. But I want you to know that I see the real cancer, the real issue that's in you. I see the real thing that's killing you. You've got to get rid of your wealth. So Jesus took this drastic measure to identify for this man the fact that this was the problem. Getting right to the root of it. You know, uh, the difficulty... For all of us, anybody that's been a Christian for very long realizes that our complaints and our concerns, we say, oh, here's the problem. And very often, we're incorrect. The problem's a different one, usually a deeper one. Jesus puts his finger on the man's problem. Underneath it all, he was having a power struggle with his dreams. One more musical reference in the um, musical Carousel, uh, there's a character in there, Carrie Pepperidge, and she sings a song about how she can't wait to get married and have children. That's her great dream. When the children are asleep, we will sit and dream, she sings. But if Jesus showed up within the play, Carousel, he would have walked over to Carrie and said, there's one thing you lack. I want you to live a single life all your life for me. That's what he would do. That's the equivalent of this situation with the rich man. You know, God came to Abraham and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offering was a burnt offering. He was asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, the son that was promised, and the son in whom all of God's promises were focused. He said, yeah, sacrifice him. 
And when he comes to this man, he says, you have to give away all your money. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I want your dreams. I want the most important thing that's in your life. So the man's here. He, he wants his dream. The thing that he thinks will bring him satisfaction and power and joy in life, regardless of God, without God. I've got this here, but I want God too. And God says, until you give it to me, not only are we not right, but it's killing you. The point is that anything you've decided will bring you joy apart from Jesus will become a monster in your life. It will drive you. Jesus said it this way, nobody can serve two masters. They'll hate the one and love the other. Nobody can serve both God and money. But I thought I owned the money and could spend it. Jesus says, no, it's the monster that drives you, and you can't serve that one and serve me. It doesn't work. So Jesus loved him when he said, uh, when he told him to sell the possessions, because Jesus had identified that this is how the man thought he would have a life of satisfaction. As a result, just like a surgeon, Jesus was offering a cure. Kill this thing before it kills you. You know, the reason we feel our lives are out of control at times is because we're afraid of losing control to God. Jesus says, give it to me. Let me decide how much money you're going to have. Put me first. Be willing to part with anything. Change your attitude. Destroy that psychological umbilical cord. Be willing to part with whatever, being willing to walk away from whatever. He says to Carrie Pepperidge, be willing to not be married at all. Let me decide that. He said to Abraham, be willing to not have a child. Because there is a monster in our hearts. Money can be a monster. It's so dangerous spiritually that not having money can become the same monster because of our desire to have it and becoming obsessed with getting it. Not having it can fill you with anxiety, bitterness, envy, and worry. You know, it's not the money, the marriage, children. It's those, it is those things that come before Jesus. It's having anything else, your fondest dream, your expectations, your demands, your ideas, your goals, as most important thing in your life. You know, finally got to move real fast. The uh, reason the young man had missed it all is that he doesn't understand what treasures in heaven meant. Jesus is our treasure in heaven. And Jesus says, is saying, I know you have a big estate on the hill, rich man, but it is nothing compared to what you will have with me. He says just in a few verses later to the disciples, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive it a hundred times as much now and in the age to come eternal life. If you have me and only me, you're rich. I'm your treasure. I'm your righteousness. It's not just um, that... Jesus is our treasure, 
but we are his treasure in heaven. There's that, real quickly, there's an account in Luke where the disciples return. The 70 had gone out and they come back. And the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Wow. That'll bring you down. Uh, But but the point Jesus is making is that your name is up there. It's known. How's it known? Um, one writer was suggesting that uh, you know in the Old Testament the high priest would have the uh, names of the twelve tribes on his on the breastplate as he did his things, and he sort of suggested that Jesus as high priest in, in heaven has, has got our names there. Uh, actually, we just sang, my name is graven on his hand, my name is written on his heart. And that's taken from a couple of verses in the Old Testament. But what an idea. Jesus has tattooed all of our names on his palm. You know, people that get tattoos here or here, uh, they're they're not doing that with the expectation they're going to see it very often. But in the palm of your hand, that's uh, that's right there all the time. In fact, the verse says, I've engraved you on the palm of your hands. Your walls are ever before me, says Jesus. So we are his treasure in heaven. Okay, so what? How's Monday going to be different? What should you chew on this week? Dreams, desires, wants, wishes can all grow subtly into things that we treasure and expect. We like to take pride in our accomplishments. And I know it's so easy for me to slip a little over time into having a focus on those things without even realizing it. And God becomes part of my life. So my recommendation, I'm going to do it, is take Monday or today or Monday sometime, and get alone with the Lord to ask Him specifically to show you anything that you're not willing to let go of. Believe me, He will look at you and love you. The Holy Spirit will bring things to your mind. You should confess your failures if that's what comes up, and then bask in His forgiveness. And then you should also pray about the things that are particularly important to you and give each one over to the Lord again, saying the words so that you are telling yourself that you're doing this too. And dedicate yourself to a single focus on Him. That's how you can revitalize the intimacy of your relationship with Him. Well, we've seen the contrast this morning between a man entangled and hanging on to his wealth and little children with no expectations and completely dependent. It's a right and true principle. There is a television show that's current. I can't remember the... It doesn't matter what network it's on. But it's called The Rookie. And it's all about... uh, It's a TV drama about a 40-year-old man who, um, you know, sort of shifts gears in his life. And he ends up going to the Los Angeles Police Department and becoming a rookie there at age 40. 
So the, the, uh, they have him set up there, and, uh, and the, the sergeant, who sort of grumpy guy, old school, uh, is talking to the rookie's training officer, and he says this, do you know why rookies are best trained, young officer bishop? Because kids don't know anything. 40-year-olds, they think they know everything. Training them is like trying to turn an oil tanker. So the bad news is if you're really smart and you know a lot and you're over 40 or getting close to 40, this process may have to be repeated frequently to turn your oil tanker in the right way. But keep after it. Having Jesus as your treasure is the only real choice in life. Let's pray and be dismissed. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom it leads us to. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have. And we thank, thank you that you love us. It blows our mind. Please dismiss us with your blessing now. In your name, amen.